text for this morning's sermon is 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 12. 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 12. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left of him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw saw how the things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as we come and consider uh, these words that are your very words, uh, this account in history that puts on display your power and might, and God, I pray that This wouldn't be merely entertaining for us to think about, but we know that Your Word is meant to change us, to conform us into Your image. So Lord, I pray that uh, You would be happy to use this text for Your glory in changing us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the mid-1800s, One of my favorite Baptist preachers was in London and had an amazing ministry there. His name is Charles Spurgeon. And the Word of God was under attack in Spurgeon's day. And the Gospel was under attack. And he was one of the greatest illustrators I think I've ever read or or ever heard. He could make such 
amazing pictures in our mind to grasp the truths He wanted us to grasp in Scripture. And what was happening in Spurgeon's day is a great many Christians were seeking to defend the Bible that was under attack and to defend the Gospel that was under attack. And so many preachers and so many writers were seeking to defend the Bible that it caused Spurgeon to give this illustration. He says, imagine a lion that is precious to a people. Now for Great Britain, the lion represented was, was their symbol of strength. And so those in London could really grab on to this illustration, I think. But he says, imagine this precious lion and a group of men who decided we're going to protect this lion. We're going to defend this lion. And so they put him in a cage and they put metal bars around him. And the soldiers gather around and they have their spears and they have their swords. And an opposing army is coming in to try to destroy their precious lion. And Spurgeon says, you fools, get out of the way. Back up, get behind the cage, open the door, and unleash the beast. Let the lion out and watch the enemies run in terror. And he said, if more pastors would would unleash the Gospel and unleash the Word of God, its enemies would back up. Quit talking about it. Quit trying to defend it. Let it loose. Well, in the similar way, as we just saw in our text in 1 Samuel, we see that God does not need Israel to defend Him or to take care of His ark. They just lost His ark as they were trying to use the ark as a magical charm to win a battle. But we see that God can defend Himself just fine. God doesn't need Israel. Israel needs Yahweh. Do not serve God as though He needs you. Rather, serve Him as one who is needy and weak, dependent on the strength that He supplies. This going to be my challenge to you this morning that when we look at this text, we would stop serving God as though He needs us and recognize our need of Him for who He is. Because when we find out who God is, the more you know who the God of the Bible is, the more your life will be changed by that God. So what is going on in Israel at this point in time? 
It's the transition between the time of the judges when the Israelites are in Canaan, but things are not well in Israel. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. There is no king in Israel. But in the first three chapters, we see hope in this one little boy being raised up as a prophet, Samuel. When the Word of God was rare in those days, God was raising up Samuel. And it came about that during this period, after Israel knew Samuel was their prophet, the Philistines draw up battle lines. Remember, the Philistines are in the southwest coast of Canaan. They're in the flatlands, and Israel is further to the east in the mountain regions. And the northernmost city for the Philistines is Ashdod. And the Philistines, up in the northern part of their territory, begin to move towards the mountain region. And there's a battle at Ebenezer. And Israel confidently goes to battle and finds themselves defeated. That's what we saw last week. And it's as if they say, how, or they did say, why has the Lord defeated us? They ask a good question, but they immediately, rather than seek God's answer to that question, they say, aha, we have the ark of God. Remember what God did for the Israelites, for Moses. They're probably thinking they have Dagon. We have the ark. And because their view of God was so low, like the gods of other nations, they thought their ark might be a little more powerful. They didn't realize the God behind the ark. So they bring the ark forward. Let's go battle number two. And when they bring the ark into camp, Israel all shouts for joy. Yes, we're going to win now. And the Philistines hear it and they say, oh no, this is the God, little g, that destroyed the Egyptians. Toughen up, Philistine soldiers. Be men. Let's go to battle. And we expect a victory for Israel, but what we find out is 30,000 foot soldiers are slain. And the unthinkable happens. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was captured by the Philistines. Not only that, when the news comes to the high priest that his sons are dead who were accompanying the Ark, Hophni and Phinehas, when Eli finds out that they're dead and that the Ark had been captured, he tips over, breaks his neck, and dies. And then his daughter-in-law goes into premature labor, gives birth to a child, 
Ichabod, which means the glory is departed from Israel and she dies. This is a bad day in Israel. And chapter 5 begins. You can just imagine. They have the ark of God now, the Philistines. They're going, two battles in a row, one. You can imagine, oh, yeah, their God was powerful. Look what their God did to the Egyptians and we just captured their God. We just captured the ark. You can imagine, you know, we do this in sports. Well, we beat so-and-so and they beat so-and-so, so we're better than them. You can just picture how this is going on. Now, Dagon is a Canaanite god that the Philistines, it's one of their gods that they put hope in. And they're carrying the ark of God back in this big victory celebration. And you can just picture them. So what are we going to do with them now? We're going to bring him to the house of Dagon and we're going to set the loser God, bow him down, put him right before Dagon. Let's bring the ark of the Israel, of Israel's God to the house of Dagon and submit to him. So you can just picture it. So they set him up there. They go to bed with victory on their mind. And they wake up in the morning and they come into the house of Dagon. And here lies Dagon face down before the ark of God. In verse 3 we read, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And then, if, if you're not looking, you'll miss it. One commentator says, this next verse, this next line is where the point of the story lies. And what does it say? So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. That is hilarious. What kind of God is a God that men have to pick up and set back in His place? You see the point? Their God fell down and it took a bunch of men to prop this God back up into His place. And not only that, the next morning they come and their God his head is cut off, arms cut off, lying face down before the ark of God. And just so they don't think it's coincidence, the, the men, the people of that territory are struck with tumors. Can you imagine? Just, you know, we read this like it's not real, like it's not real people, like it's not a real uh, event. 
And it says in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod and He terrified them and afflicted them with tumors. What would it be like to be terrified and afflicted with tumors? Can you imagine? Look at this growth I have on me. Well, yeah, I, I got one too. And you start to find out it's happening all over. And the people say, let's gather the lords of the Philistines. Remember, there's five major uh, Philistine towns, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. And each town had a lord over it. And the people said, let's gather all the lords together and let's figure out what to do because we think it's the ark of God doing this. So they come together and they say, let's send it to Gath. You know, I don't know how they came about that decision. Maybe the Lord of Gath was feeling pretty pious and saying, oh, you really think it's that ark of the Israelite God that we just destroyed? It's as if maybe... I, I mean, it would be speculation. Somehow, they decide to bring it to Gath. As soon as they bring it to Gath, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon them. People are dying. They're breaking out with tumors. And they say, what are we going to do? Come on, lords. Come together. Figure out what we're going to do. So then it goes to Ekron. The people in Ekron, word must travel fast between city to city. They say, uh-uh, you ain't bringing that God into our town. You see, the people are usually ahead of their leaders, it seems like, in wisdom. We're not just going to transfer this thing to every town. The people of Ekron are smart. They're saying, no way. But while they're making that decision to what to do with it then, the people, it lingered too long, are breaking out with tumors. And those, or it says, are dying, and those who didn't die are have tumors. Can you imagine? the chaos. Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine living in a town? I mean, cancer is everywhere, but it's not like that. Everyone doesn't have it. The great majority aren't going to die today or tomorrow, but we see that Israel's God is the God of Tumors. In a God who all other gods fall down before. Israel's main problem all throughout the Old Testament is they know their God is good. They just put Him up as another God. A lot, maybe a better God, but they put Him on par with other nations and their Little gods. Little G. You see, why else would Israel keep creating high places to these other gods? And the point is, there is no other God like Yahweh. God needs no one. Yahweh doesn't need man. 
So what can we glean from God's Word as it reveals this account to us? How can it change us? The first lesson to learn is that you should rely on Yahweh to fight your battles and destroy your enemies. Look at this. God is working salvation for Israel, and Israel has nothing to do with it. God is just fine having the ark that symbolizes His presence go into enemy territory and defeat them all by Himself. God does not need us. One of the oldest works of literature is back 2,000 years before Christ is a story called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And in this story, it's a Babylonian story, but within this story, there's a major flood that comes upon the whole earth, really similar to the account in Genesis. And a flood comes upon the whole earth, and there's one who survives, Upnashtim. He survives the flood. The flood has been on the earth for many weeks, and as the flood subsides, he offers up sacrifices to the gods. And what it says is, when he did that, all the gods swarmed over him like bees as he provided the offering, or as flies, I should say, to get their food. Because the gods, little g, need man. And they had just gone months without a sacrifice to feed upon. That's what a pagan god is like. In all the pagan countries through history, man needs to feed the gods so the gods will treat us well. But Yahweh needs nothing. Yahweh does not need to be stood back up. Yahweh doesn't need to be cheered on as the ark is brought forward. He does not need you. Now get this. It's not that He doesn't want you. He doesn't need you. And you might say, I know that, but I think as we look, we're going to find out that often we believe that God needs us. And so we serve Him as though He has a lack in and of Himself. Let me give you a few texts in Scripture that teach this point. In Acts 17, verse 23, as Paul comes into this Roman city and he sees this altar made to the unknown God. They recognize there's probably God they don't know. Let's, let's, let's make a monument for Him. Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now get this. 
nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Did you get that? It doesn't say man doesn't serve God. What it says is, the God of the Bible is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. And then a few verses later in verse 29, He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art or the imagination of man like everyone else's gods. That's not how we should think of Him. In Psalm 50, verse 7, the psalmist says this, Hear, O my people, and I'll speak. O Israel, and I'll testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Now get this. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. See that? As a receiver. And perform your vows to the Most High. And now here's the key. And call upon Me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you and you shall glorify Me. See that? I'm not. If I'm hungry, I'm not going to come to you. I own all the animals you're offering up as sacrifices. Rather, in the day of trouble, come to Me. I'm the one who will win your battles. I'm the one that will fight your Fights. In Isaiah 46, you have the Babylonian gods, Bela and his son Nebo. And there's golden idols representing these two gods. And Isaiah mocks them. He says, Bel bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but they themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth. Carry from the womb, even to your old age. I am He to the gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will say. Here's what he's saying. Look at their gods. Their gods are a burden on the backs of cows. 
These poor cows have to live under the weight of moving these gods who can't move. And he's saying, Israel, your God is the one who holds you up and carries your burdens and will save you. Our God is not like the other gods. We don't look at the other gods and put up our God. Our God is in a class of His own. He's the living God. He created the heavens of the, and the earth. He has no need of us. He is totally happy and sufficient in and of Himself. Ralph Dale Davis says, that sometimes we can think in these unhelpful ways where God is in need of us. He says our little poetic ditties are like this. God has no hands but our hands. God has no feet but our feet. And so God is waiting for these servants whom God can't do anything unless they be His feet and walk Him around and they be His hands and do His bidding. The God of the Bible is not like that. Those poems we should rip up and throw away. That's how their gods are. We don't serve God like that. We serve God because He carries us. Because He's saved us. So you might be asking, how does this practically look? How do we know when, how do you know when you're serving God as though He needed you to do His work? How do you live in ways where you think that He needs you to destroy His enemies? I'm going to give you four practical ways you could do it and you can think of your own first when we complain about our ministry as being too tough there's too many needs and i'm the only one you know this is one of my favorite ones oh yeah being a pastor so tough you won't believe all the needs i can i just can't hardly live under the burden of all the needs to help shepherd God's church. What's really at the heart of that kind of talk? It's really similar to Elijah. We can laugh at Elijah, but I can only laugh at him only because I'm worse than him. But remember his story? Look at this man. He's fed by ravens. Brings him bread and food every morning. Then when he's called to go into the city, he runs into this widow who doesn't have any food because he prayed that the rain would stop and the rain stopped. And God provides the oil and the flour continually so that they have bread. Her son dies. And... God raises her son. Imagine all these experiences he's realized. He realizes Israel is, has all these prophets of Baal. And 
He just, there's 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah's like, Lord, this ministry you gave me is too great. There's 450 of them and I'm the only one left. Oh, the burden to serve you. Right? This is, this is what Elijah's doing. And you know what happens. He mocks all these prophets. He says, let's see which God can send fire down on the sacrifices. They're cutting themselves. They're trying to bleed to feed their gods. They're dancing. They're doing all these pagan rituals. No fire comes down on their altars. Elijah calls on God to show himself powerful. Fire hits the altar after he covers it with water. And Elijah's like, you know, you think he would just start relying on the God who obviously brings about salvation, right? But what we have is him complaining. After this great victory as God throws fire, Jezebel says, as sure as anything, I'm going to kill him. And he runs like a little girl falls down under a broom tree and says, just kill me now, God. You know, obviously, you saved me up to this point, but you're not going to save me anymore. What does God do? God bakes him a cake, wakes him up, wake up, eat the cake. It's magical cake. It's going to empower you for 40 days. Read the account. That's what it says. Who's the Savior? God's the Savior. And Elijah ends up hiding in a cave after this. God comes there and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? Why are you complaining? You know, what does Romans tell us? Romans tells us that God says, speaking into this account, Elijah, you're not the only prophet in Israel. I've kept for myself 7,000 prophets. There's only 450 prophets of Baal. They're dead now. There's one girl left you're afraid of. And there's 7,000. What was Elijah doing? He was thinking salvation was on his shoulders. That salvation was going to come from him. And I can tend to think this way. Oh, my lot in life. It's so difficult. I know God's called me to this. He's a cruel taskmaster. You know, it puts me in this situation. Well, here we think that we have to strive and we have to fight it. Second, when our working precedes our praying, we can know that we're trying to work our own salvation. Listen, when you're working, even in ministry, or even in good things, comes before you're praying, it's showing that you're proud and pragmatic in thinking that you have to do it. So you're not even asking, seeking God's will, asking Him to work in your life. So my question is, in all your important aspects of life, how much time do you spend praying? Because if you really believe that salvation is of the Lord and that He fights the battles, 
You're not going to be like Israel and just say, let's bring the ark as a magical, I got an idea, let's do this pragmatic thing. But rather, you're going to wait and you're going to consider and say, okay, what is it, Lord? You're my salvation. You're my hope. Or if we get the feeling we're irreplaceable, right? Here's the deal. If Moses is replaceable, you're replaceable. God doesn't need Moses any longer. He used him. He was pleased to use him. It was an honor for Moses to be used by God. But when Moses died, God's plan of salvation went on. If he doesn't need Moses and he doesn't need Joshua and he doesn't need the apostles to live forever, then he doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. He's the God, the living God, who has no needs. Or how about when we try to clean ourselves up and come to God rather than come in the blood of Christ? You know what this is like. You're, you've, you're, on a backslide, you're, you've been sinning, you know you're far from God. And what you begin to do is say, okay, I'm going to start going to church now. I'm going to get into church. You know, you know, I'm not going to drink as much on the weekends. Or, you know, I'm going to start doing devotional. I'm going to start. And what, this, this all sounds good, but if we start to clean ourselves up to bring ourselves before God, who, who's, who, Whose salvation is this really? But it's when we flip it the other way. In the midst of our rebellion and our ugliness and our sin, we say, the blood of Christ saves me. I'm going to draw near in the blood of Christ before I shoot off into all these self-cleaning up actions. These are all signs that we're being a lot like the Israelites treating God as a little God. How about when we try to save Christianity instead of unleashing it? Oh, you know, you know look, look at evangelicals. We're being so abused in America now. Persecution's coming. Things are going down the tubes. What are we going to do? How are we going to... Rather than... Sharing the gospel with your neighbor. Shining the light. Unleash the lion. He doesn't need us to protect him. He's not surprised at what's going on in America. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you the Bible. He's given you a church to support you. He's given you the power of the living God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead to shine light in the midst of a dark American culture rather than complain about it. You see, when He's Savior, we don't try to defend Him, we unleash Him. Secondly, since we are to rely on God to fight our battles, let's let our false gods fall before Yahweh and stop picking them up. You know, we laugh at what the Philistines did. Yahweh knocks down Dagon and says, I'm God. And they go pick him back up and we laugh at that. How often do we do the exact same thing? The God of the Bible, we come in contact with Him. He shows us our idols. 
are daily things we go to other than God to find our happiness and our pleasure. You know, this is what we live for rather than God. You come into contact with the Bible. He knocks that idol down. And what do we so often do? We go grab that thing, start to stand it back up again. An idol can't stand before the living God. God knocks it down. We... This is the Christian life, right? This is what Paul was talking about. This is the battle. Let the idols fall. Quit picking them back up. What do you want? God with the little g or the God of the universe, the living God? Why do you think that thing which always gets knocked down and cannot satisfy will someday satisfy and stay standing? It will not. That's why in Romans 6, Paul says, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin? The grace may abound. If God forgives sin, well, let's sin all the time. He says, by no means... How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's another way of saying, if God knocked your sin down, why are you going to go pick it back up? You don't have to pick it up. You have the living God. And if we're honest, this is our battle. To put to death our flesh. All these other things that keep us going but never satisfy And what I think God's Word is showing us and the silliness of the Philistines picking them up is be satisfied with the living God. See if He stands like a rock in your life. So since you should let Yahweh fight your battles and we should let our false gods fall before Him, then here's what you finally must know. Put all your hope in Christ your Savior. Here's the deal. At this point in time in Israel's history, God is setting up a king in Israel that culminates in King Christ. If all the other gods fall short. Then put all your hope in the salvation that God has worked for us in Christ. When you leave here, just know this. There is no God like our God. There is no God like Yahweh. There has never been. We tend to think this. Oh, there's Christianity, there's Islam, there's Buddhism. No, it's not like that. They're not on the same plane. Our God is a living God that has no needs. He's Yahweh. He works salvation for us in Christ. Just think about this. Christ is the one whom Himself saves us from our enemies. Who's our greatest enemy? A holy God. Think of this. God is dangerous. When the presence of God comes into the Philistine land, 
people are dying and terror is widespread. We're going to find out next week as they send the ark back into Israel, Israelites are dying because God is showing I'm a dangerous, holy, and mighty God. And they're saying, the Israelites are saying, what, can, what do we do with the ark? Who can stand? Here's what you do with the ark. You run to Jesus Christ who so saved you by taking your sins so that when you are put up before a holy God, God says, come to me. Live with me. You're a part of my family. I adopt you. The only way we can be saved is if we quit trying to save ourselves and look at God's salvation. Jesus Christ, who died for sinners. Why? To bring us to God so that we can live in the presence of God and not be in terror. You see, the God of the Bible isn't a cupcake God. He just isn't. You just read your Bible and people die when He comes around. So my challenge to you is not to serve God as though He needs you. Rather, to serve Him as one who is needy and weak, dependent on the strength that He supplies. Here's how Paul put it. He put it like this, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace is not in vain. So the grace of God didn't end up in no service. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. That's how you serve God. You exist by the grace of God as a Christian. And so you serve Him with all of your might. But it's not you who's even empowering the service, but it's the power of God. Peter says the same thing. And about 12 chapters later, a young Israelite who most definitely heard about this story in Israel came to bring his brother's cheese on a battle line. And there was a horribly violent, big giant who was mocking Israel. And what's David's question? Do you remember? What's his question? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, he got the point of the passage we just looked at. They're all seeing a big giant saying, no way. He's looking at them saying, is our God the God who kind of gave all the Philistines tumors and then brought Himself back to Israel? Israel didn't. Is that our God? So then it makes total sense that David says to the giant, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. Well, those sound pretty scary. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 
this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. Now get this. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. (laughs) See how that works? God delivers. He acts. And then what does it say? And I'll give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that I'm David and great. No. We'll know that there is a God, capital G, in Israel. Let's learn what David knew. Father, thank You for Your Word that reveals to us who You are. Lord, it is such a comfort to know that we are always in need of You. You are never in need of us. God, I pray that our lives would be marked by considering what it means that You are Yahweh, the living God. Lord, help every one of us to ask the question, what would my life look like? How would it be different if we understood that You alone are our salvation? Help us to consider. In Jesus' name, Amen.